when we had the day long here in midsummer, the, um, the accompaniment was somebody screaming. Those of you who were here. So the day was on maximum brightness, and there was, there was some uh, poor, poor being was screaming endlessly outside. So today it's on aging and sickness, and we have arias. So. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's the creativity retreat kind of spilling over or, or exactly where it's coming from, but it's an interesting uh, accompaniment. Backdrop to our, our, our day. <laughs> so hopefully, um, uh, during that, that sitting and then uh, using some of those uh, uh, instructions, you, you can uh, get a, a bit of a sense of, of how this kind of um, process works, and particularly working with with pain, uncomfortable feeling, but also with emotional states, and and uh, also just states of mood, like. Um, in a way, it's an advantage that it's a sort of a, a hot, heavy day uh, to to be sitting meditation immediately after the after lunchtime. Normally, probably most of us wouldn't do. Um, but then to to recognize, yeah, the mind can be in a in a heavy, hot, dull space, but we still we don't have to create suffering out of that, right? There's, that's the second arrow: is that it can just be a hot, heavy feeling, and we can just be present with it, and that that which is aware of hotness and heaviness and dullness, and maybe some of you are thinking, hot, heavy, dull, me? I'm fine. <laughs> but if so, then I feel very happy for you. But uh, you know, just the, the temperature being what it is, and this number of, of people, you know, all of us gathered here together. Uh, but it's it's... These are the kind of exercises that can be useful to do. It's like, wow, look, even if it's just for half a second, like, oh, right, I forgot to get annoyed by the heat, you know, distracted by something. Oh, for a moment there, it was fine. Ah, look at that. I was uh, temporarily unirritated. <laughs> so that uh, that sense of, of being of recognizing that the... the the second arrow is something that we add to the moment, like the uh, the the habit of commentating, uh, getting uh, excited, uh, getting uh, over-inspired, getting critical, uh, or just chattering, just endlessly making remarks, <laughs> just out of habit. The more that we can just leave the moment alone, but with great uh, an acute consciousness, great awareness, and the more we're able to, to be with a whole variety of conditions, whether we, we like them or not, whether they're, they're comfortable or not, that, that that's the, the clue. It's up to us whether we make a problem out of it or not. And that's, that's the case even if we're suffering some kind of illness or some sort of mistreatment by the, the world or you know, the government, the universe. Um, I'm, not, I'm not condoning um, uh, abusive behavior, but... Uh, in any way, but uh, when things are, are to some degree inescapable, like we've got chronic pain, there's a, uh, or the, the weather's hot, <laughs> and uh, there, there's no cool place to go, then it's really important to recognize that where we can go to is the place of, of uh, letting go. Where we can go to is the place of, of non-contention. 
and that's a, a great place of, of peacefulness. It's not, the, it's not capitulating, it's not just caving in. It's a place of, of a, an attunement. And you know, one of the things that, that's come up today, both in the, the conversations and other things people have said, is how sometimes when there, there is no escape, uh, when there is no negotiation possible, or something has already happened, like we've lost a loved one, um, and that, that that limitation of opportunity, or limitation of possibilities, is precisely that limitation that, that helps us to go beyond it. When we've got a, 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 what seeming, uh, seems to be an array of, of uh, outlets, <laughs> an array of, of, um, of alternatives, then we can get lost in, in hopping from one, one thing to another to another to another to get away from this particular uh, discomfort or emotional or physical discomfort. Sometimes when, when life steers it to a situation where uh, we have no alternative, um, or, or like you've signed up for the retreat. Yeah. You can't get out of it now. Your mind yeah. is racing for an excuse to <laughs> how you can have a really good reason to get out of this meditation hall. <laughs> you know, the, to, sometimes to a completely irrational degree. You know, that, that uh, just say, no, I've made my commitment and I've got to stick with it. I remember Joseph Goldstein confessing one time how he was on a retreat and he was having a particularly bad time and he, s- he saw some aeroplanes going over and he thought, I wonder if they're starting a nuclear war. That will give me an excuse to leave the retreat. <laughs> yeah, then the retreat will be over and then, then he thought, hang on, wait, 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 wait. I'm looking at nuclear war as a viable alternative to me having to deal with my mind. But something is out of balance here. Yeah. As a preferable alternative, I would prefer nuclear war to having to deal with my mind. So Joseph, being the the astute, um, great spiritual being that he is, realized this is not a state of mind to to follow. So that this is, uh, uh, in a way, this is. an important principle, and it's, it's unfortunate sometimes it is only when, when the universe conspires to give us no escape that we finally <laughs> you know, let go. But uh, if we're wise, we can actually steer ourselves towards those, um, those kind of awakenings without having some kind of major crisis forcing us to that, so that it's, uh, it's something that we're, we're much more prepared for. Um, a friend of ours, um, who used to live here in, in Marin, a guy called Daniel Barnes, who's a, a quadriplegic. And uh, he, uh, he was very athletic as a, as a teenager. And he, um, how he, he ended up in a wheelchair was he was, he was a rock climber. He was a, a very uh, <coughs> sort of gifted, sporty type. He, used to, he was a surfer and a rock climber, not at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd just come down, he'd been climbing down Half Dome Peak in Yosemite. And he'd completed the climb, and he was sleeping in the grass at the bottom of the, of the cliff. And then uh, a teenager in a jeep came, came through the grass, which they weren't supposed to do, and, and ran over him. Didn't see him lying in the grass and, and, and ran over him. And uh, he was uh, about 19 or 20 at the time. That was in 1978. And so I became a novice monk, and he got run over at about the same time. And so we have uh, 
And he, he was one of the people, part of the group, that originally invited us to come over here to California to start a monastery um, back in the, the late 80s. So he'd, he'd been um, disabled for about uh, 10 years at that time. And he was about a year in hospital after his injury. So he, his spine was, was broken kind of quite near the top. And he had, so he had some movement of his biceps, but none in his triceps. So he had a little bit of movement in his, in his arms and hands, but not much. Um, and he'd been in hospital for a year. Um, and uh, <coughs> one of the, the ways that he, and, and having been a very outgoing and active person throughout his, his teens and childhood, and suddenly being stuck in the, in the hospital for a year and then in a wheelchair permanently, um, it had caused him to start looking at spiritual questions in a, in a very direct way. And um, he uh, came across Buddhist meditation during that time in the, in the, the early 80s. And he, uh, once he, came, he met up with, with Ajahn Sumedho, our, our teacher, and uh, uh, became acquainted with the monastic tradition, uh, he began to refer to, to um, his, uh, his chair as his vinaya, his monastic discipline on wheels. He said, well, you know, you, and he, he would talk, talk to us and say, well, you know, you kind of chose yours. <laughs> and uh, he said, that you, you went forth as a novice about the same time that I went forth. And there's a bit of a difference because you, you chose your limitation and, and I didn't choose mine. But he would also see that when he was handling it in the most skillful way, that, that's how he would relate to his, his being stuck in the chair, was like a, uh, his ordination. That because the monastic training is like a, it's a kind of voluntary paraplegia. You know, you're, you're, as, a, as a monastic, you know, you're giving up uh, your sex life, you're giving up uh, dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, people, some people, not necessarily in that order, might be more difficult. But, yeah. No, uh, you, you don't choose what you eat uh, every day. You... Um, you don't use money, haven't used money in 30 years. I'm not in debt. <laughs> Some of you might feel envious about that. <laughs> but it's a, a very conscious limitation. But it's a, it's a limitation that is taken on in order to help to, to realize freedom. That's the point of it. And so that uh, the reason why I, I mention this and, and how uh, I really was very inspired by Daniel and, and his, his wisdom and how he was using his his disability was that he, even though, again, like we were saying this morning, he would never have chosen it, that no, no way. But that having happened, it had narrowed his range of, of alternatives. It had narrowed the range of his possibilities. And because of that narrowing, he knew the only way to get out of the chair, as it were, is to, to um, be free inside, to be liberated inside. And so that the... Um, the, the reason why people come on meditation retreats or even just come on a day long, limiting your, your, uh, your time on a Sunday just to being here in, in the, the community hall at uh, Spirit Rock and walking around this area. It's a limitation. Or just like sitting in meditation for a period, waiting for the bells ring, where there's a conscious limitation. But we create those limitations and then, and then find that place of surrender uh, to that, lim- that limitation. And in that surrender, there, there's a freedom. 
And that's not the surrender of having been beaten in a fight. Like, okay, uncle, uncle, okay, I give up. <laughs> it's the, in, in uh, the Indian tradition, uh, surrender is called pranidhana. In Sanskrit, it's pranidhana. And it's considered a, a very um, uh, refined spiritual quality. It's that, in a way, letting go of ego-centered views, that sense of, okay, <laughs> this is the way it is. It's a, it's a letting go of contention, letting go of resistance, which doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean to say you don't take your vitamins or do your exercises. I mean, we do the best we can to maximize our options, but it's also it's like recognizing that um, there, uh, there, there can be a, a, um, an ego-centered habitual resistance and resentment to limitation, and that by that resistance, by that, that ego-centered you know, denial and, and fear, that we're actually compounding the cause of limitation. Does that make sense? We're actually locking ourselves in tighter by resenting being locked in. And that sometimes it's that letting go and saying, okay, there's no escape. There, this is, I'm bound by the forces of gravity, by, by biology. You know, by, yeah, this is this is the the fact of it. Then, in a mysterious way, uh, we can find a, a tremendous uh, freedom in that. So that there's a there's a mysterious balancing act. But a, a lot of it is to do with this quality of uh, of understanding and working with limitation and using our limitations and the the kind of um, uh, experiences that we have and, uh, to, to be a cause for that sort of wisdom to arise. So we're using the limitations, like using our, our illnesses, like our friend saying there's kind of multiple crises <laughs> that uh, you would never have invited, but yet they, they help us to awaken um, because they, they focus our attention. It's like when you, if you notice when you're sitting in meditation, your mind might be drifting about, well, what am I going to do tonight and next week? Oh, gee, I've got that, that meeting to go to. And then, oh, I should not have that conversation. That was pretty stupid. And I wish I hadn't said that. But oh, it was really neat what she said about this. And yada, 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 yada. And then that pain in your knee starts to crank up, right? And then the universe shrinks, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> suddenly all those conversations go very quiet. And even the arias going off the, you know, over the meadow, they disappear because there's, <laughs> there's this... There's this blast furnace, this volcano happening in my knee. <laughs> so pain narrows our attention. It gets our attention. Again, we wouldn't wish for it. We wouldn't choose it. But it being there, then it narrows the attention. And then in that moment, what we see is that the, the feeling of pain, um, uh, we are seeing that if we, str- if we resent it, we struggle against it, or we hate it, we're adding dukkha to that. But if we're able to just know it, and then not, uh, not resent it, to not resist it, but just say, here it is. This, is. this is how it is. Then there can be a tremendous clarity and peacefulness in that. Now, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not um, encouraging self-immolation or, <laughs> or deliberately causing ourselves pain, but it's, it's interesting to know that often it's only when our attention has narrowed in that way and we see that it's up to me to, to let go here. It's up to me to do something with this. And we find that moment of, of letting go, of not, not contending against the way things are. Then we find a, a tremendous freedom, even though at that moment that, that painful feeling might still be there. 
there's a freedom, there's a peacefulness, which is a, 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 a mysterious thing. But that's how, one of the ways that we can use the increasing limitations or difficulties that, that come with the aging process or with the losses that we have, the ones that are close to us uh, are ill or, or who die, so that rather than being uh, seen as um, regrettable or, or unwanted intrusions on our life, those aspects of our, of our changing world, the aging of the body and the presence of sickness and loss, they can be things that help us directly to awaken. Just uh, during the, the lunchtime, someone was saying to me how uh, his wife of uh, 50 years had, had passed away and uh, he felt a tremendous grief and that was a very powerful presence in his life. But then he also began to realize that you know, I'm not the only person who's lost others and that the grief that I'm feeling is not as great as the loss of someone who's lost a child or, or uh, you know, other causes. And so that, uh, that painfulness of losing his beloved partner was a cause for opening up compassion and a sense of appreciation for the, the, the suffering of others that, that he said wasn't there before. So that um, I- I there are many dimensions of, uh, that, uh, of, of our lives that are built around the aging process and the, the process of sickness and loss and so on that bring incredible richness. So that the, the image of fruitfulness is not just a vain poetic quote from Keats just to kind of <laughs> get people to show up on a, on a day long. <laughs> but it's actually there is a fruitfulness there there's a richness, a ripeness that we can find in our lives that, that comes from adversity. Uh, and again, as, I don't want to quote endless numbers of English poets, but as Shakespeare put it, <laughs> sweet are the uses of adversity. Sweet are the uses of adversity. That, uh, that we, we, would, uh, we wouldn't wish trouble upon ourselves, but the trouble having come, that then... There are, there are blessings that, that can emerge from that. So before we have a, uh, a period of walking, maybe if there is a, any particular questions on that. Yeah, Zoe, quickly. So th- this isn't about aging per se, but about that radical acceptance. This is the way nature is. Mm-hmm. Can you bring that also to the the painful feelings about things that are happening because of their stupidity in the world and people, you know, um, you know, like people in government or places do stupid things. Can you also somehow bring that again, not in the sense of condoning or not doing anything, but to to ease the painfulness of the resistance. Exactly. This, yeah. exactly. So how would you... <laughs> <laughs> how? So like there is stupidity and greed and aversion in the world and this is what government people do and yeah. this is the way nature is. Well, one, one of the ways I like to reflect on this, speaking of sickness, is that um, you know, from, the, from the, Buddhist, the point of view of Buddhist psychology, only totally enlightened beings can be considered sane. Sanity arrives at arahantship. 
So everyone who's less than an arahant, not, not fully enlightened, should be considered crazy. So this is life in the psych ward. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not kidding. That, so in, in a sense, I think we do pretty well. <laughs> and uh, so you can find a, a lot more compassion when you realize, well, this is, these are people who are playing with not even half a deck. <laughs> you know, who are running the country. <laughs> And so it's hardly surprising that they make some pretty stupid decisions and there's kind of, oh, look, a, a greedy politician. Oh, look, somebody lied. <laughs> you know, wow. You know, to get what they want. What? <laughs> you know, they took advantage of their job so that they could get a, a bigger house for their family? No. <laughs> you know, it's just, well... This is just greed, hatred, and delusion doing its thing. Which, again, is not, it's not condoning it, but it's more like seeing it in a proper context. And the funny thing is, is that when we, we, we see it in a proper context, then far from making it us more passive, it actually makes our actions more effective because our intentions and our wise action is also part of the way things are. That's also part of what we're opening to is like, I'm going to do something about this. And, and, and that, uh, so it doesn't mean we're turning into a kind of passive observer, you know, would be passive observer, but more uh, freeing up our, the quality of our natural engagement. Yeah. That we're not, we're not uh, hindered, but also coming from a place of compassion, like, you know, who put this three year old behind the wheel of the Ferrari? <laughs> it's like, this is not wise, you know. <laughs> Well, at least take the keys away, you know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for this day and for this topic. Um, so my question is about not being in contention, but then not falling into passivity. Mm-hmm. So um, a new book came out this summer called Counterclockwise by Ellen Langer. And the idea is that our beliefs and expectations affect our health and our relationship to aging as much as exercise and diet and doctors do. And that when we're mindful of negative beliefs we have about aging and can change those beliefs, we actually change our relationship to our experience of aging. And, and instead of being in contention, we can be more open and curious and interested. So I'm wondering kind of where the wise effort falls to not be in contention. I'm sort of getting that one today. Mm-hmm but to not be passive and resigned, but still choose of how to respond mm-hmm. to these things. Well, yeah, that's the uh, quoting Shakespeare again. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing in them. So to... Do you just lie there and let it happen to you, or do you just start a fight with the ocean? Yeah. But that the point is, and if you another newly published book there on stacked on the table at the back on the island, uh, one is called, one chapter is called "To Be or Not to Be." Is that the question? <laughs> just so happens I wrote it. But. Another great English poet. <laughs> Would would be. Would be. Yeah. Chapter 5, there you go. So do help yourselves. You have a number of copies there, so please help yourselves to this. 
It's a free distribution book. Um, so yeah, it, it's the, the, you can't do it by formula. It only comes out of a, a, a genuine mindfulness and wisdom, like a real, a real attunement to the situation. Because as I often say, what's the right thing, quote-unquote, to do one moment, three seconds later, it's the wrong thing. It's like if you're playing a, 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 a piece of music, if you're in an orchestra, you know, the, the hitting that right, that right note, you know, you know you, you've hit the note exactly as you, you felt was right, but then you're, you see the conductors going <laughs> and say, oh, well, I felt good about that, but I need to get softer. And then the, uh, the next, no, next note you hit is just a little gentler because you, you know, in that quarter of a second you saw the, the, bat, the baton kind of gentling. So you read the signal. So it's that kind of reading the signals that it, that it takes. And that... Um, that there's not just looking at our intentions, but also looking at the results of our actions as we as we follow them through, as we as we carry things through. Um, what's the effect of that? How loud was that note? Was it right on the beat or not? What was there? So it's not an it's not an easy straightforward A B C one two three answer, but life isn't that way. <laughs> But it, it's all part of the, that same principle because also, like actually one of the things that, that Daniel, uh, sent the same guy, Daniel Barnes, um, because it, in the, back in the 80s there was a lot of these um, teachings around. I think there was a guy called Bernie Siegel who, you know, you can heal your life, I think was that kind of thing. And Daniel said that, that kind of approach has caused more suffering in the disabled community than you could possibly imagine. Because for many people, it's not only are you stuck in a chair or you've got terminal cancer, but then you failed again because you didn't heal yourself. You didn't get out of the chair. So you obviously haven't got enough positive thinking. So it's well meant. And so I'm not negating those, those things that can have a benefit. But to say, if you just have the right attitude, you know, you can walk again. You can cure that cancer. You can you can stay to, alive to the 150. You know, and and so that there's a there's a usefulness in in not just caving in and being passive, but that sense of if you just had enough, if you really had it together enough, then you could. And then we we, we this country. I mean, I, I love America very much, but. People are very prone to believing promises. <laughs> Europe's a bit more cynical. You know? it's not like, oh, yeah, right. You know, a couple of thousand years of, or at least since the Dark Ages, you know, like 1,500 years of, oh, yeah, I've seen, seen this one before. But you know, the, the, US, the US is much, there's a much kind of fresher, like, oh, really? Wow. Snake, that's for me. Really? And uh, it's it's you know which has got its own blessings, but it's 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 it affects us very strongly. We we tend to believe promises, and, and people can can you can create a huge amount of suffering for yourself. That's why we have the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> we what? That's why we have the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. yeah. But the. Um, 
you know, there, there are blessings that come from that, like the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> but also there's, there's the, uh, we, we set ourselves up for a lot of disappointment. And uh, so the, the, the balance between those is just you know, doing what you can wholeheartedly, but also recognizing the larger context. Jennifer. I have a question. Hold on. We're Hold taking on. it. Hold that question. I have a question for Ajahn Amaro, but first I want to give Zoe a quote about stupid people. It's from <laughs> the Lazy, Gu- Lazy Man's Guide for, to, for Enlightenment, and it's the hardest and most important spe- step in spiritual enlightenment is giving others the freedom to be stupid. The hardest and most important step. There you go. Um, you, I've never heard you talk about Ajahn Chah's death story. I was wondering if you could tell us about his passing. He breathed out and he didn't breathe in. <laughs> And so it went. (laughs) (laughs) And thus it was. January the 16th, 1992. Actually, Daniel was there. Daniel was there when Ajahn Chah died. Strangely enough. None of the the foreign monks were there, but uh, Daniel and uh, and the woman who ran our retreat center in in England, in Amaravati, they also happened to be there. uh, They visited Ajahn Chah that, that, that night. Yeah, he was paralyzed for about 10 years and uh, couldn't move at all. He had, some vo- he had a little bit of voluntary movement in one hand for a couple of years. And then for about the last six or seven years, he had no voluntary movement at all, not even in his eyes. Was so it a stroke? Hmm? A stroke? They think so. It's not absolutely clear that some kind of stroke and then bra- followed by brain damage. So they put it, he had some kind of, a, s- a small stroke, then they put in a shunt. They thought it was water on the brain, and then that didn't go quite right. And so there was damage that was caused by the shunt. Um, and, uh, but eventually he was, he, so he was completely paralyzed throughout the last six or seven years. And uh, he had four monks looking after him around the clock. He never had a bed sore. Ten years of being bedridden, he never had a bed sore. Which any of you who've done any nursing know, it's pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary. So he had extremely good care. But um, uh, during that time, he um, uh, he w- he seemed to be com- completely unresponsive. There are various um, psychic types who came and said, who visited him and said, he's really fine. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he, he's like, so actually he's more worried about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's uh, he's he's having a grand old time. Okay. And uh, so that that's what I, I've heard. But um, <clears throat> but he was not able to respond in any way. I, well, that's not entirely true. There was there was a I, I heard a story where there was two monks who were nursing him who were having an argument with each other. And so Ajahn Chah, was, he had no voluntary movement whatsoever. But um, he would get these, sometimes he would cough. He could, his coughing reflex would still work occasionally. 
once, every once in a while. And these two monks were, were arguing with each other across the room. And suddenly Ajahn Shah coughed violently and this gob of phlegm flew out of his mouth and went straight between the two monks and smacked into the wall. <laughs> so he was a good shot. So they, they got the teaching. So that was a, the, the special transmission outside the spoken word. The gob of phlegm sutra. <laughs> There, there, was also, there was also another occasion which was even more mysterious, which, which was very, if you want a little kind of mysterious story. Um, so one of the monks in, in England um, uh, had the chance to go back to, to Thailand. And, and during this time, he got very into healing, like faith healing, the sort of laying on of hands and such. And so uh, Ajahn Chah was quite was paralyzed by this time. And so this monk was on the, he, he was taking a turn at the nursing roster, and he was there in the middle of the night, uh, with Ajahn Chah and he thought oh maybe I'll try some healing on Ajahn Chah <laughs> so here's Ajahn Chah no voluntary movement for like at least t- two or three years three or four years lying in the, in the bed and so this monk has his hands over Ajahn Chah's chest <laughs> you know and I, I certainly rec- I recognize that you can do things with healing and that's, I have no, no gripe with that at all uh, I wouldn't criticize it but at, uh, as he, he, he sat there with his, his hands over Ajahn Chah's chest for a while, uh, Ajahn Chah sat up, <laughs> kind of sat up in the bed and looked at him. <laughs> like, who do you think you're helping? <laughs> it's not you that's, that needs to help me. Uh, <laughs> venerable. <laughs> And then just sort of looked at him, sort of pinned him with his eyes, and then just went, lay back down again. <laughs> so there were these odd little occasions of esoteric teachings that occurred during that time. And there was numerous, numerous times when they thought that he was, um, he was going to pass away, but he would, he would recover. And then, so there was always these sort of alarm calls, and everyone would gather around, and then and then he would recover. And then finally, um, it was, this had happened so many times that when there was this thing, oh, you know, Lumpur is really sick and we think he might go tonight, there was sort of, oh, okay. And so a few people had been over on the 15th of January. Ajahn Pasna and some of the others from the foreign monastery had been there. But then it looked like Ajahn Chah was recovering. But Daniel and this woman, Jill Osler, they were, they were staying there. So they, they stayed on into the, the evening. So they were, they were they stayed on. I think the others had all gone back to, to the foreigners' monastery, and um, and then uh, Ajahn Chah passed away that night. So they were the last you know, amongst the last people ever to see him alive, and um, he passed away on January the sixteenth. And um, and so then they uh, his birthday was June the the seventeenth. So he was neatly spaced sort of halfway around the year. And that uh, Ajahn Pasna, who was the, the abbot of the, the, um, the monastery for foreigners and also was a, one of the main people looking after all the funeral arrangements, he said, if Ajahn Chah had chosen, had actually decided on which day to die that would be most convenient for a funeral, it would have been exactly in the middle of January. <laughs> 
because that's where the rains are all finished, the water table is high, because they, they were expecting like a million, literally a million people for the funeral. So it's going to be a, a year after his death. And then uh, when they, they had the, he, he passed away on the 16th of January. The funeral was a year later on the 16th of January. They built a, a stupa that was 32 meters high, 16 meters deep, that, was, um, uh, that had 16 pillars inside. And in Thailand, they're very fond of the lottery. And you can choose which numbers you buy when you buy lottery tickets. So dozens and hundreds of people in Ubon, they, they thought, okay, 16's the number. So they all bought ones and sixes. And the national lottery number that came up on, on that day at the funeral was, was, uh, uh, was, had 16 in it. And so they bankrupted a couple of bookmakers <laughs> in, in the local town. And the, the, the local paper in Ubon City was... Uh, Long Cha's final gift to his disciples. Because <laughs> he was famous for never... One of the things that people do, they, they go to, to meditation teachers and they, they try to get lottery numbers out of them. They think, you know, they've they got psychic powers and they'll, they'll, they'll give you a lottery number. And Ajahn Chah was famous for never, ever giving lottery numbers. Yeah, he was, and he was very critical of that whole scene. And so there was this kind of... <laughs> Cheeky, cheeky headline that Lumpur Cha's final gift to his disciples. Right, okay, you finally got a number, right? <laughs> I gave you one, and then people cleaned up. So there was a, there was a lot of little things like that around his death. But when when he was cremated, then uh, the, when they find that when uh, the body of a great being, a great saint, is is burned, then oftentimes the bones uh, turn into little crystals, little sort of pearl-like things. Ajahn Chah's turned into like snow. They're like pure white, fluffy. It was almost like a kind of um, like fro- like frozen snow. And no one had ever seen anything quite like it. Did they keep it? Oh yes, all of it. Where is it? In the, the stu- in that same uh, shrine in in his monastery. Yeah. But it was a uh, you know he was a very pragmatic person, and so having that that. Um, the passing away exactly at that time was, it was extremely convenient. And now every year in his monastery, they have a, a sangha gathering on his birthday and on his death day, exactly six <laughs> months apart. <laughs> yeah. And this is the, the January one is the cold season one, so it's by far the most convenient and comfortable time to meet. Okay, so shall we go and do some walking? And uh, so um, this time... Yeah, as you as you walk, then um, to uh, to be to be investigating the the uh, the feeling of the footsteps and also the different moods that uh, that that go through the mind, um, just to uh, to use and also the moods of like of feeling of uh, of uh, comfort or discomfort, feeling the, the heat of the sun or Annoyance, uh, somebody invading your walking path. You know, we have these territorial wars that can occur over walking spaces. To um, to uh, to be bringing to mind that this uh, uh, this uh, the the journey through life. So you can think of the beginning of the path as as a birth moment, 
And then as you walk through the path, again, there's your death moment at the end of the path. Just to, to see, I mean, maybe you think this is a totally hokey imaginative exercise. <laughs> but just, just to, uh, see if you can envisage that, that journey down the path. It's just a few steps. Just, I mean, how many of us feel that life is going by extremely quickly? Just, just thir- 20 steps, 30 steps. <gasps> I can't be here at the end of the path already. What? I just, ah. So that's what it's like. <laughs> so just to have that walking from one end of the path to the other, just seeing that as a, a birth moment to a death moment. And then as you walk back, then again, bringing it to mind, um, these are just patterns of nature, nothing to get upset about, and nothing to get excited about. So using those kind of themes as you go to and fro. Okay, so it's just uh, on 2.30 now, so maybe if... Um, the bell can ring like five past three. Where's our five past? Five after? <laughs>